Hello and welcome to the third series of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we currently deliver millions of meals every week. Our purpose is to build amazing products that have positive impact on people and the planet and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect frank and fascinating conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is all about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today, I'm talking to Paramjit, the founder of Ant Digital. Ant Digital is a digital consulting business bringing tech skills and capabilities to global businesses. He scaled to a thousand people, raised growth capital, and is innovating the consulting business model since founding Ant Digital in 2014. Before founding the company, he scaled another consulting business to 300 people and successfully sold it after 10 years of running it. What I love the most about Paramjit is his focus on people and culture. He thinks incredibly deeply about culture and talent and is hyper-intentional about designing the right system for people to be at their best. In this episode, we talk about his journey from India to the UK's Midlands at age seven and how it influenced him. How the collapse of Enron was the pivotal moment in his career, giving him the courage to start his own business and how he puts the person at the heart of the organization, recognizing that the pace of opportunity and innovation entirely depends on people as key ingredient. Um, Paramjit, it's so fantastic to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I've got so many questions around culture, scaling a company, and also technology, obviously. But I first want to hear your story. Um, please tell me about your upbringing. All right. Well, let's start right at the beginning then. Uh, I'm one of those people, uh, I guess my story goes back a while. I started off life in India. I was born uh, in the northern part of India, very much uh, the farming heartland of, uh, of that part of the world. And as was the case with a lot of uh, people at that time, my dad had uh, decided to come and find work in the UK. And uh, a few years later, you know, I was about seven years old, followed him with the rest of the family. And we started off life in the in the UK, in the Midlands. And I guess it was a bit of a, you know, awakening in terms of uh, culture reality check here versus what was like uh, in the rural part of India. And, uh, you know, those days actually, you know, technology was something that didn't exist. Well, yeah, computing uh, was very much in the infancy and then very much in the, uh, the hands of a very few select people. But somehow I managed to find some passion, uh, particularly with the, uh, the launch of the BBC Micro and the ZX Spectrum. And that caught my fancy and uh, that gave me uh, a lot of opportunity to, uh, I suppose, you know, get into something new where I was equal amongst others. And we're all sort of starting the ground uh, at the same sort of basis. 
Uh, and so I really latched on to uh, computing and IT at that time. And that led me on to study, you know, computer science, electronics at university, went on to, uh, you know, having okay GCSEs and okay level results, and then uh, did very well at university through the passion really into this subject that was really emerging. And so, you know, after university, started my career uh, in technology, writing code particularly code when at that time it was hard you know those days writing uh, anything took months and years uh, to get live but I started really in the very basics very early days of uh, programming and building technology building uh, code at the time to connect you know Unix main uh, Unix to mainframes to Windows 386 devices at the time you know really embraced the, the technology and emerging sort of area and then after that, really sort of continued to grow my career in uh, consulting and with the big companies and all going really, really well, uh, all, you know, having uh, having a good time. Uh, and then uh, I suppose what really changed the game for me was really the, when Enron came along. Uh, as if you remember, Enron mm. was a massive organization in the US and Arthur Anderson, which is the firm I was working for at the time, were its auditors. Uh, and something in the U.S. happened, which caused the collapse of the whole of Arthur Anderson. And um, something that you could ever imagine, a big company with the pedigree and background of Arthur Anderson just not existing anymore. Uh, that was a real sort of wake-up call for me and, and really made me realize that, you know, risk is all pretty relative. Uh, you know, risk in small companies is probably just about the same as the risk in a very big company like uh, an Arthur Anderson at the time. Uh, and so I thought, actually, you know, I'm going to do my own thing. Uh, I know what I'm good at. Uh, I know what I enjoy. And I'm willing to take a bit of a risk and uh, start on my own. So I started my own company, doing IT consulting, helping IT directors with their transformation agenda. I started that company in 2003, grew up to about 300 people. And in that journey, learned a lot around, you know, growing, particularly people company, uh, people-based company. Uh, had a lot of fun, did some amazing stuff uh, for organizations, big and small, uh, but learned a lot. Uh, Ten years into that, uh, an opportunity came up to exit that uh, to a U.S. business. And I thought, actually, time is right for this thing to you know, go its own way. And having learned everything along the way for me to uh, do something slightly different. And, and that's kind of what brought me to kick off uh, and digital um, about eight years ago. And just before we go there, I, I love the overview. Um, and I mean, you've clearly experienced so much, but I just want to focus a little bit more on kind of culture and values and your upbringing. Yeah. And I wonder if you have a story that kind of, you know, talks about how you came to the UK, age seven, to the Midlands. Like, how was life like? I can't even imagine how different it must have felt. Yeah. It, you know, I mean, you know, like I say, it, it was a big culture change and a big shock uh, coming from a place where we you know, lived in the middle of nowhere. You know, some of the uh, the comforts that you enjoy here that we, the Western world enjoyed, like electricity, didn't really exist. And then coming to the UK at that sort of age, very formative early years, but coming to that sort of, at that time, 
it was a completely different world and not knowing a word of English as well and not uh, ha- having, not understanding the culture, the norms, uh, you know, it's a big uh, adjustment for, for for me and the family. And, and also it was a tough time, I think, generally, you know, coming into a, uh, a culture that is not, at that time certainly wasn't welcoming a foreigners, uh, you know, wasn't the easiest of times. But, you know, the thing is, I suppose in life, and that's certainly what I learned in the early days, is that, you know, you, you have to sort of gravitate to something you enjoy, something you, you uh, value and focus on those things rather than necessarily all the things that you can't control, all the things that you can't uh, uh, influence as much. And in, in terms of values you have today, I don't know, work ethic or family first or, you know, what do you think is kind of directly related to that experience? Well, I think I think actually, uh, yeah, work ethic to some extent, but I think family is a really important value for me, and, and I think a really important value I think in business. Uh, but certainly for me, family, you know, coming from that kind of background and acting as a family, helping others, uh, helping each other out in difficult moments, yeah, and, and actually being there for each other, I, I think is a really uh, deep, and certainly in you know in my culture, certainly you know. Back in India, those days, the extended family—you know, looking after not just yourself, but uh, but your community, doing something for the community—is a really important part of what we we're all, you know, born up with, and 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 a deeply ingrained into, you know, who I am. I, I'm 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 not necessarily a practicing Sikh, but Sikhism is a, is my um, I guess religion, and and Sikhism is also about helping others and actually giving back, and so I think that that ingrained value probably stems from my childhood and, and where I started from, really. Thank you so much for sharing. Really fascinating. And then, so if we fast forward, Enron is collapsing and you yeah. alluded to, you know, everything you believed in, I guess, from a risk perspective is changing. Your relationship with risk is changing. Yeah. It gives you the license to to think about starting your own company. But talk me through a little bit more about, I guess, the leadership principles or the mental model you had pre and after Enron collapsed because that must have been such a huge impact on your career. Yeah, yeah, I think you're spot on. I think you know that that yeah, those kind of things are lightning moments, really, aren't they? Where where they bring to focus what you believe in and what you think is normal. And, and you know, pre Enron, I suppose you know, like a lot of people in uh, uh, you know big companies. I mean, you you have a career ladder progression, you know what the next step is, you know what you need to please your boss, you you know, you rely on the person above you to do the right thing and, and set instructions and direction and guidelines. And, uh, you know, you, you not only take orders, but you, you know kind of where you're heading, where you're being directed by somebody else. And when something like Enron happens, uh, certainly for me, it, what, it, what it made me realize is that that, that, doesn't really happen. I mean, we're all human. We're all kind of trying to make up, trying to figure out the way. Just because you're somebody above you, I'm not sure they have any more or less uh, control over the future than you have. Just because they are, you know, a few years senior than you or, or whatever, I'm not sure it makes that much difference when it comes to moments like that. You know, uh, moments where you may the organisation may or may not exist, and just that brand of Arthur Anderson or Deloitte or in Accenture, whatever brand you work for, it's a brand, but it's not who you are and what skills you have, and and it will, you know, it helps, but it isn't what defines you. It is not what's going to make you successful or not. 
So I think if a leadership point of view, I think Enron and the moments like that does cause you to think about you as an individual and what you're doing and what you're relying on from other people uh, and, and what they can really deliver on. Because some of the things they, something like Enron, I mean, yeah, companies go bust. It's not because the individual is uh, incompetent. It's just not everybody can control everything. Yeah, really powerful. So you kind of, from a leadership perspective, as you said, you you reflected, you kind of figured out what your own principles are, yeah. that what you perceived as normal is quite a fragile construct. But how, how does that then lead you to conclude to start your own business? That's still a big step forward. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really, I mean, I, I think starting your own business is, is a really frightening thing. Uh, and, and I think as much as Everybody wants to. Everybody wants to kind of do their own thing and start their own thing, be their own boss. I think it does take a lot of courage. It takes a lot of you know confidence. And I think it's where the family, I mean, for me, certainly where family comes in. I think you have to have people who can push you a little bit, who can say, yeah, I believe you can do this. And, and I think that to me, starting my own business, A, was feeling confident that I know something that the world may value, you know, into the professional services, but having the kind of the support and the, uh, the, the courage from other people and the confidence of other people saying that you can do this. And I think that, that, that combination of your own ability plus other people who believe in you and think that you can do it and support you. I think that combination certainly for me was the trigger. I, I knew I could be in you know, technology professional services. I knew I could, do my work uh, but making that brave move of being an employee with you know good earnings to do your own thing requires somebody else to say yeah you could do this that, you know it just reached that point and where you know I was wanting to do something uh, I wanted to start my own thing but actually just required a few people my family a few friends uh, actually a few prospective clients to say hey Pramji you could do this uh, go for it and I, that, that I think that was you need that kind of trigger to make that sort of leap. And, and that's kind of what happened to me. I know Enron, I thought actually, you know, I could do this, uh, but it still required somebody to say and, and, and people to believe that I could do it and give me that confidence. And either that's through friends, family, you know, clients, whatever. But I think that that made the made it possible to actually resign and say, right, let's put some money and let's start. Really fascinating. I still remember how I quit my job in 2012, almost 10 years ago, and how yeah. daunting it felt going away from a relatively good salary or great salary to no salary and the motivation it kind of brings. And I love the points you made on confidence. And at what stage into the first business did you then feel like not only is the idea good, but this can actually work. Like I, you know, I, I can see how I'm succeeding. How long did it take you? Yeah, I think I think one one thing is it it was it was pretty. I mean, for a people business, which is slightly different to I guess you know um, your organization, and for a people business, one thing I realized in hindsight, it, it doesn't take much. I mean, you know, in a people business, we are selling talent and skills, and as long as you have good people and good skills and And, and you're focused in a, in a market where there's a need for skills, you can be successful on day one. You know, it's just a question of how much of risk you're willing to take. Do you hire head of demand? Do you hire um, just on the back of demand? That's really the only equation. And, and uh, certainly in my business, my first one, we were being a bit cautious. I, I was, you know, I had some invested some money, but 
you know, it's always daunting. Uh, you don't want to run out of money. So I was only hiring on the basis of you know, demand, but demand for smart people is always there. So it was, it was, I suppose, success in the sense of, uh, you know, having revenue, having income, having people that happened pretty much on day one. It's just the growing of that took a bit longer because, you know, growth has different challenges, but in terms of getting going in a people business, which doesn't require a huge amount of investment up front, it's really easy. I'm surprised more people don't do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm, and I, I, I mean, I love the, the differentiation and I do think you're such a unique per person or, or you not only had the courage, but you managed to then scale it. And, and you're right. I mean, the barriers to entry for consulting business are extremely low. Anyone yeah. can start it, but then scaling is the real challenge. That's the scale, yeah. So that's so talk me kind of through the, the growth pains at the beginning. What were kind of the, the key parameters to really figure out to make this business a scalable business? Yeah, and I, I think I think to answer that question, I think, I think I've done it two ways. So I think in my previous business, grew that to 300 people, took 10 years to get there. And, and certainly, uh, you know, figured out a lot of... Uh, growth sort of points in that. And in my current business, we've basically gone from zero to over now a thousand people in wow. uh, seven years. So there's definitely what I did in my previous business and what I've done in my current business is very, very different. It is scaling. And one, one of the challenges that I, uh, I think one of the differences are two and, and why the previous business took longer to scale is in a people business. I think one of the things, you know, you realize and actually any business with people is after about 80 or 90 people, it, it becomes a very different kind of business. The communication challenges, the, uh, the inefficiencies, the processes, the systems. I think there is a, a inflection point around 80, 90 people where you don't know everyone where, you know, there's a lot of, you know, everybody in a room meeting together, it's grown sort of incrementally, but randomly to some extent, and we're trying to fix problems along the way that are much harder to fix than when you have two or three people. And so at the 80 or 90 level, I, I did feel, uh, you know, some real challenges of growth that more representative fundamental business model issues or operating model issues that you can't get past uh, unless you fix it at the beginning. So, so in the AND example, we spent probably you know, five, six months without chasing revenue. And we, we tried to design a scalable uh, operating model for, for AND uh, that tried to address some of those, you know, how do you go beyond 80 people? How do you keep that focus in the business? How do you, you know, retain a, a set of values and a, and, a, and a way working that is amenable to scale? And, and rather than fixing them on the fly, which is really hard, how do you design them at the beginning and ingrain that into the very first person you hire? So growing, uh, particularly people, business or with lots of people, I, I think my belief is that unless you think about it up front, it's very, very hard. Uh, and after about 80 people, it's harder to then change something. It can be done. It just takes longer. And so you were incredibly intentional about how to design the operating model. Can you share some of the, the lessons learned from the first business that then influenced that decision? Yeah. So, so in the first business, for example, you know, as you grow and you hire senior people in particular, you know, every senior person comes in with their particular 
preferences and biases and, and what they've experienced. And they, they want to be, you know, their senior person, they want to do their thing their way. And so you end up with this very dilutive effect of senior people in terms of what the business stands for, what it does, how it does, how it does it. So in my previous business, for example, every time we hired a director, they wanted to do, you know, we started off doing IT strategy and IT transformation, but the next director we hired was very hot on, you know, change management or human capital management or transformation or finance. And that's what they want to do. They go and sell that, they go and deliver it. And then over time, you end up with this dilutive effect to where everybody's doing bits of everything, but you're not great at any one thing. And people, you know, aren't necessarily growing in a very thoughtful way because it's driven by almost ad hoc uh, in terms of what the clients demand or what the clients you know, want you to do. And so it gets hard to scale that kind of business, in, in my view, with consistency of purpose, with focus. Yeah, 300 people doing 300 things is one thing, but 300 people doing one thing is incredibly powerful. So my previous, you know, my previous business, you know, we were doing well and, and we grew well, uh, but we were getting very much at that point where to continue growing, that focus, that sort of sense of, you know, what we stand for, what we do, how we compete with the competition, you lose that edge if you're doing too many things when you're too small. And I'd love to understand that dichotomy of the dilutive effect versus the power of diversity slightly better. Like, how do you harness the power of diversity whilst keeping people focused? Yeah. So what I learned, <laughs> this is my learning, is, is what I what I learned is you have to you have to start with a very clear blueprint of how you are, what you are as a business, how you want to work, how you want to go to market, how you organize internally. I think you have to have a bit of a blueprint to start with. What that does is it makes sure that every person coming into the organization, at least as a shared starting point, uh, and they make a choice about starting into a company with a precise view of how they want to operate and work. If they have a very different view, perhaps it's not the right company for them. You do uh, end up with self-selecting in terms of the kind of company that you mm. want to participate in. But then what you have to have, because life isn't stationary, things don't stay still and you, and you, want, you want to be opportunistic, you want to be open to new ideas and uh, markets and challenges. What you then have to have is a very precise way of evolving that model in a very thoughtful way. So you listen, you understand what's going on in, in that model and you fine tune things, you adapt things in a very thoughtful way. Almost like you're starting, uh, I think the analogy is much more, if you like, if you think about human biology or, or in nature, you, you have a, an ecosystem of yeah, cells and, and dynamics that are going on, you, you're part of that, but they evolve naturally and you fine tune. Some cells die, some cells, you know, grow faster. And, and I think organizations, if they start with the blueprint, that's great. And then they evolve as they learn, as they adapt to the environment, to what people bring in. As long as you're constantly adapting, then you do bring in uh, diversity of thought, you do bring in new ideas and you continue evolving. But the core blueprint, the core principle structure has to be relatively stable. And it's about meaningful, thoughtful evolution rather than knee-jerk, you know, this guy wants to do X, so let's do that. This person wants to do this, let's do that. And, and I think that to me is the difference uh, in that thoughtful evolutionary approach to business and business change. I love the um, intentionality 
you use to kind of figure figure that out. How do you find the discipline to work on the business, not in the business all the time to kind of see, to recognize these patterns and to make these very um, thought out kind of changes? Yeah, that's the other thing I, I've, I've often uh, found is, um, certainly my previous business and, and, and generally as, as a consultant is, yeah, I mean, this comes back to another thought I have, which is other human beings uh, are wired in, in certain ways. And I think it's hard to ask the same person to run a successful business, you know, to run a budget, run a plan, deliver that revenue, execute on a, on a reasonably precise thing. And at the same time, think about how you change that thing to imagine something that might be happening in the future and how you kind of adapt and change that. Because I think I think it's really hard to find one person who who, who is equally adept at holding both of those things in their mind. You either got to deliver something, operate, execute to a plan and a budget, or you got to imagine what's coming up next. Yeah, that's kind of too simplified. But but I, I think what I've tried to do here is is to separate out the running of the business and having clear budgets, plans for the people who are wired it with it. Give them a plan, give them a budget, and execute on it. And have some other people who are thinking about the evolution of the business and, and to really separate that out. And it comes with a cost and obviously, uh, you know, in the old world's overheads. But it, th there is an intentional element of people who can really think about, you know, what's going on in this system? What's going on? What are we learning? What do we think is working well and what isn't? What are the markets needing next? What are, the, what are we seeing in the outside world? And how do we adopt the whole thing? in a way that helps everybody execute next year in the new paradigm, the new way rather than the old way. And so I think I, separating it out, I think certainly has been helpful. And like I said, it does come with overhead and costs, but I think it's the only way to grow at a rate where you are delivering well to a precise plan. And you're also keeping current and evolving and being open to new ideas and, you know, particularly in a, in a professional services world, new skills, new needs, and being very open to that. I love the points on compartmentalization. I think that's really powerful. Um, and I would love to understand from a business model perspective, and I, I apologize, I'm hugely naive. I never built a consulting business. But to me, from the outside, it feels like the only avenue to, to generate more revenue, more profitability seems to be more people, more consulting hours sold. Is there like a way to decouple scale from people in your business? I mean, you're spot on. I mean, you've been a consultant, familiar with the consulting business. I mean, fundamentally, it is about people, a number of people, days worked at some sort of day rate. I mean, it comes down to that kind of equation from a business model point of view. Now, the scaling thing is interesting. I think if you were to think of a traditional way of scaling consulting, it, it's about building pyramids, bringing more people on, promoting people, and you end up with bigger and bigger pyramids. I mean, that's kind of what the consulting profession, how it grows. I think the way to break that and, and, and is to grow in a much more product-like business, if you like, where you know you have almost, you don't grow in a pyramid, you grow in repeatable chunks or repeatable units. So in an and world, we call that a club. A club is a, a construct of about 80 people with a leader, with 80 people, developers and product people. They work for about 10 clients uh, and they have their own space, their own leadership, their own Christmas parties. Everything is thought of as operated as a 80 person business. The way to scale something in that, in this model, the way to scale that is to build more clubs 
that are essentially you know, similar in the way they operate and to keep them always sort of relatively distinct and, and separate. And that gives you scalability in a much more product-like way. You just build more clubs. Now, it's not quite as easy as that, but that's the way I've seen it in terms of how I've approached scaling a fundamentally a people business rather than going with a traditional model. This is a way of building a club and then replicating more and more clubs. It's uh, really, really fascinating. I've never thought about it. Um, and I mean, would you consider building a piece? I mean, I'm surely you have considered it and, and concluded, no, it's not a good idea. I'm, I'm still asking because I'm curious. <laughs> But would you consider building a piece of technology and then selling that piece of technology? So doing a bit of licensing, because clearly most of the customers are asking for very similar things, I would imagine. Well, yeah, this is, so this comes to a slightly different perspective. I think one of the things in business, you have to be really, I think you know this uh, more than anybody. I think you have to be very clear and purposeful about what you are and why you do it. I think there's a big difference between selling technology, uh, whether it's uh, you know product or a, uh, or, a, or a widget or a you know a service, to selling uh, what's fundamentally talent and skills. And so I, I think we have we're very much focused on we are a people business. We're people of the heart, and we we make money through our people. One of the things we are looking at, and the one of the things that we're looking at technology, which is how do you get people to, to be able to do more work? Uh, not only more hours, but how do you get them to produce more stuff using technology as a kind of an accelerator? How do you give people, uh, you know, frameworks, tools, uh, yeah, low code or no code sort of technology, the things that enable them to produce more stuff uh, using the same amount of time so they have a bigger impact? So we're looking at those ways of having, giving people, chance to produce more and do the more interesting work rather than the more sort of basic work. But I think as a business going into a business where we sell software fundamentally, I, I think it is a very, very different business. And I, for one, would say, I don't know how to run a software business. We're not geared for a software business and it'd be very difficult for us to coexist with a very, you know, it comes back to that purpose. You know, we're here for a reason. We do that one thing very, very well. I think for us to then say, actually, let's, do a product, it's a very different kind of proposition for people, for clients, and for the business model. Um, so I think we've steered away from trying to do too many things. I think that makes perfect sense. Thank you so much for sharing. And I'd love to talk more about the people side. Um, you mentioned very prominently, well, I guess, what, what are the reflections you have around building a really great culture people love working in? Yeah, so, so my, my my reflection on, on culture and, and building something that could scale is particularly important for me. I think, I think first of all, you don't have to necessarily define it, but it has to be intentional. It has to be from the very top. I think you have to think about why you do what you do and the values that are important to you as a leader. You know, that permeates through everything that you do, every action you take, every decision you make. You, you know, may, you may not have the best boilerplate, you know, on a wall somewhere, but having clarity on what you believe in and why you're doing something, I think is fundamental. I think the second thing is, I think that has to be baked into uh, the operating model, the operating constructs so of how you make decisions, how you do things as a company. And I think if you're talking about a people uh, business, I think, you know, we've really taken it to heart to think about what is, what is important for a person. 
really kind of cutting through some of the, in my view, traditional mindsets, traditional thinking about how you look after people. We've really kind of taken a kind of look at that and redefined everything around how you do, how you look after people. So things like, if you want to create a culture that is very flat and there's very, uh, you know, everybody's part of something, yeah, we 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 have everybody in and has an and title, which is a, you know, some founder and foodie. My and title's foodie. Everybody in and has a <laughs> and title, a mountain climber, a amateur builder, a golfer, a skier, a mountain lover, or a yeah, dog breeder, whatever. And and so everybody in and has a an and title. So we could talk about to each other as real human beings is equals. It doesn't matter whether we're a founder or somebody's, you know, chief of this, ultimately they're a human being. And so we've, we really, you know, from day one thought about the and titles defining who you are, not the, you know, the professional level or the seniority you have. They're important, but you know, from a human centered business, uh, they're only one element of, uh, you know, thinking about the individual. So the job title or the and title is really important. The idea that, you know, you are part of a, a small unit of 80 people. The reason that's important is that the leader of that unit knows your name, knows who you are, hopefully knows what's going on in your life. Uh, and, and the decisions that you need or they make are really local to you. It's not like somebody else will tell you in a thousand person company, whether you get promoted or not, the best person to make that decision is, is your leader who knows you amongst 80 people, you know them. And so trying to instill in, in the organization that small company feeling where you're learning, uh, uh, you're growing, you're having fun together in a small group where decisions that matter for you are being made by somebody you know that they know you, I think really, really makes uh, yeah, this a kind of organization where the person really is the heart of it. Uh, and what I've tried hard, for example, resist every day is to create centralized sort of HR spreadsheets and systems where somebody has to have a report of all the people in the company and performance ratings. At the end of the day, it makes no difference to anyone. All it is, it creates admin and bureaucracy and nobody knows the individual and the person in the club and the leader of that club. So we've tried really hard in terms of that culture element to think about how you instill that sort of culture, that sense of belonging and how we look after people, almost like a small company and, and try to resist what happens in growth is to create centralization and, and central process. It becomes very remote from the person itself. And, and that really erodes the culture you have as a small company. I love the focus on on the person at the heart of the organization and the decentralization and the meritocracy. I, those yeah. points sound incredibly powerful. So thanks very much for bringing these alive. Yeah. And I mean, it's clear to me that you are so passionate about people and some of the secret sauce uh, and digital has is clearly its people and culture focus. But how do you marry this up with you know, creating a performance culture. I mean, ultimately engagement drives performance. Well, I'd, I'd love to hear how you think um, about performance at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is a really good question because having a great, happy bunch of people doing wonderful things, if we're not earning the money that we need to pay their salaries, they will not stay. I mean, yeah, we all need to look after our families, our children, our friends, and, uh, you know, work uh, is not just for work. 
so, so it's a really important point in terms of being in high performance and commercially minded as well. I think that's, that's really critical for any business. And, and I think, I think, there used to be the old analogy, if you remember, in terms of professional services particularly, there used to be an ordering where people used to talk about the client first, then the firm, and then the employee. You know, so when you make a decision, is it, you know, is it the client, is it the revenue, is the company safe, and then last is the employee. I've often thought about, and this is what we've done in AND, is turned the other way around. So if you put the person first, then the company, then the client what behavior does it create and, and does it lead to better performance? And, and the reality is in a world of skills that are, that are short of, uh, the world is short of technology skills, looking after the person, giving them the environment to grow and learn, they will do the best work uh, for their client. And that best work for the client will deliver the best bit of software, better technology for the client that will drive the commercial value for the client and the revenue for the company. And so it's a real hard leap of faith to really think that way, but it does deliver, in my view, high performance teams because high performance teams are full of people who are you know, engaged, who are learning, who are growing, who are feeling like doing valuable work and what they're doing matters. And ultimately that drives revenue and, and drives you know, income for the company. So it is important uh, in terms of high performance, you know, revenue, absolutely important. But I think there is a logic, it's very hard to model, but there is a logic which says, actually, if you focus on, particularly in a world where there's a shortage of talent, if you focus on the individual, make it, make it a great place for them. They are motivated. You surround them in an environment where they're learning and growing with peers and other people in and or in the client, they'll produce their best work and that delivers real value. And then that's how we've approached it. Clients are absolutely critical for us, but it's not necessarily the last on the list, but approaching it that way, I think does lead to high performance. Yeah, it's a really powerful point. And you mentioned that we live in a world of a shortage of, of tech skills. Obviously, your culture obsession, your people first kind of view of the world got you to scale to a thousand people. But what have you learned about hiring so many people in a hyper competitive market where every person you interview could yeah. probably join Google, Facebook? Like, yeah. how do you compete? How do you stand out as a consulting business against, you know, giants? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 there's a couple of things. I think one, you have to choose where you want to compete. Uh, I think, you know, there is always companies out there that will pay you know, way beyond that you could ever imagine. And there are also companies that, you know, have brands that, you know, people want to work for. So I think, I think you have to choose carefully where you want to compete. The other thing I think we really, that we've really focused on is our, our mission is to close the world's digital skills gap. And what that means is not simply about just hiring all the, the, the experienced people in the world because we're not really helping to close the gap. So we have been very intentional around hiring a mixture of people, experienced people, senior people, junior people who are starting their profession and putting them in an environment where they also learn from each other and they grow collectively. And so when we think about competing for talent and growing, I think you have to be very intentional about in a competitive environment, how do you attract a blend of skills, a blend of talent, a blend of experiences, and how do you put them through some sort of experience where they 
learn together, they grow very quickly, and then um, support them to do great work. There isn't a, there isn't a, like a magic pool that we tap into that has all these senior people somewhere that are just sort of uh, ready to be hired. So we recognize there are you know, some of those people. There are some people who are, are emerging, uh, some people who are getting into this field. And I think as long as you, and certainly for us, we've, we've thought about how you do that scale. That means you know, thinking about recruitment, onboarding, training, academies, all these kind of things that go with creating that scale that you need in a world where there isn't the necessarily just take people and hopefully they'll they'll be okay because they're already experienced. I mean, we have to grow our own. We have to nurture our own. Uh, and that mixture is the way we've solved it. Love, love these points. And obviously you have one of the best vantage points regarding UK talent um, when it comes to technology. If you follow the trend for the next five to 10 years in terms of, um, you know, talent or, or demand continuing to outstrip supply, like where, where will we be in like five to 10 years? I think we're in a we're in a we're in a world where I think the the pace of technology change, the pace of opportunity, uh, innovation, things that just simply look at yourselves. I mean, organizations are popping up uh, and disrupting everything. All of that is, is uh, reliant on technologists. Whether you're a software engineer, or a data, or a product person, it, yeah, technology is the, the the thing that's driving all of these ideas. So I think in the next five. You know, five years, certainly next 10 years, I don't think that's going to stop. I think there's more opportunity, more innovation, more competition, more ideas. There's plenty of capital out there. The missing ingredient, in my view, is the, is the capability, the capacity to, to turn an idea into reality through software and data. So I think the, there is a massive continuing gap between capital, ideas, and the availability of talent. So I think this problem isn't going to go away. It just gets bigger and bigger. I think the nature of technology into a particular, you know, tech stack or a particular architecture model or a particular, you know, cloud environment, they will come and go. And I think for me, what we need are people who are open to learning, open to picking up new things. They have logical people, but also creative people. It requires all sorts of people in this mix the ability to learn, the ability to apply and, and work as a team is the only way to uh, meet that gap. But the gap, I think, will certainly you, you have a perspective on this as well. But I think the gap is getting bigger. And, and I think you know, the world, certainly post-pandemic, I can't see uh, a point where there'll be enough people to satisfy the needs of the organizations. Yeah, I, I see it exactly the same way. I mean, it's all about talent. There's such a huge shortage of, of absolutely amazing world-class people in the world. And with all the capital we see, that, that it feels like it will only widen. I mean, there's so much ideation going on and so much yeah. capital. There's just not enough talent. Um, so the trend will accelerate, I think. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, and I think the thing, the interesting thing for me is that what's different now versus 20 years ago is that... Technology has got a little bit easier. Uh, you know, the difficulty of building something in 20 years ago versus now is it's worlds apart. Um, so it has got has got easier and it's got simpler. So now it's about taking an idea, thinking about it from a, a real user point of view, and then putting into code, scaling it, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's still challenges, but it's not as difficult as it used to be. So it's got a lot easier. And the other thing is, I think the old days of 
you know, can you just bring in a package or just put something in and, and we're done? I think that world is gone. I think the combination of speed of change, innovation ideas and the simplicity means actually more organizations want to, particularly for the things that really drive, you know, opportunity, uh, you know, new ideas, things to market. They want to they want to plug and play. They want to, you know, build on things, integrate things, those kind of things. And that will always require skills. Uh, so I don't think we're going to go back to the world of where SAP will take over and one package will conquer everything you need. I, I think that that world doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, makes sense. And you mentioned growth mindset. How do you as a leader, you know, stay up to date, make sure you learn? How do you kind of apply that philosophy? Yeah, yeah, I think it's two things. I think I think there is a kind of mindset of a leader, which is a growth mindset, which I think is about being humble, being, you know, constantly being curious about what's going on. I think, you know, we, we all... We're all in the same, whether you're a, you know, a leader or you're starting your career, we're all learning in a world that didn't exist 10 years ago. So I, th I think recognizing we're all in the same bucket, we're all learning, I think is really important. I think the other thing I've done is, certainly in my previous business and this one, is surround yourself with people from all sorts of uh, you know, backgrounds and experiences, uh, whether you call it an advisory board or an you know, operating board or whatever, people that can constantly be holding you to account as, as the founder and CEO and, and the person at the top. It's very easy to believe what you think is right is the only way. And, and having people who are not in the business saying, actually, hang on, you haven't quite figured that out well, or have you thought about this or that? I think it's really, really important. So I, I've really tried always to operate you know, my previous business and this one with a, a bunch of people, uh, my advisory board, who I can bounce ideas on, who can provide a perspective. If I've got a difficult challenge or think I'm something thinking about, I can bounce around with them. And also if I run something by them uh, and, and I think I figured it out, I think a number of times they somebody will find a different angle, different perspective, just because they're not as close to the detail or not as closely tied to it. You learn so much. You, you question yourself so much and you think about a problem so differently. Yeah, I have to say the best decisions I've made, I'd like to say I've made them, but actually they've always been on the back of bouncing around with other people, some in the company, some outside. And I think that that always helps from a learning in the moment as opposed to you know going away for three months at a time and trying to figure out all yourself. I think learning for me is real time. It's actually conversations. It's calling upon people. It's sort of having that courage to say, I'm thinking about X, you know, do you think this is the right way or whatever? I think that's to me is the, the way to learn. Yeah, no, um, I know. I agree. It, it's so fascinating when I look at my, the decisions I make and I dissect them and like how much I gain from the advice I get from people in the business outside um, yeah. is, is really, really fascinating. Yeah. And I think that's it. I, th I think, you know, it, it's, it's learning, uh, I think, but it is, easy as a leader to think you know it all and, and to get caught up in your own sort of thought trail and lead to a conclusion, which may be the wrong thing to do uh, because you just kind of, you're building upon your own ideas rather than actually being open to challenge. And so you are curious, you're still learning, you're growing, the organization is growing after only seven years, you had a thousand people. Where do you kind of want to be in five years, 10 years on a personal level? 
Like what excites you? Well, well I think at a personal level uh, and what excites me and at a company level as well, I think for a personal level, the thing that's for me, it's really, uh, I'm on a journey myself, which is, you know, how do you grow a company, an organization that is, you know, global, that is, uh, you know, thousands of people. So we have a, you know, in my view, I, I want to see what it's like to take the kind of ideas that we've created at the beginning with this club model, this idea of a small company and a large company. Can we do that when we're uh, 5,000 people around the world? Uh, can we do that where we've upscaled 200,000 people? How, you know, and, and, and be like a big company and a small company. And I think for me, where I want to B is, is prove, learn, understand how you grow an organization, that pace, that scale, and yet retain that feeling of a small human-centered company at the heart of it for the one individual in that group of five, 6,000 people. I think that to me is unproven, yes. And, and I think we've done a lot to get to 1,000, but I, can we do it at, at scale and real scale I'm talking about? And that's to me the thing that I'm curious about. I'm learning, I'm applying, I'm adapting, I'm listening. We're learning how things are working today, how we need to evolve those. And that's the thing that kind of keeps me going because there are so many unsolved problems. Well, there are lots of playbooks and copies that we could take from other organizations. But I think for us, it's trying to find a way that, that challenges those core assumptions around a core organization and what it needs to be and look and feel like, we really want to challenge that. And I think that to me is the thing that I'm uh, excited about. And that's what drives me, certainly for the next sort of four or five years, because I think that's the, 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 uh, the ambition that I have. That's what we're ambitious about as a company. And um, I'll, I'll be watching with huge um, admiration. <laughs> and I need to ask about COVID. You know, fortunately, the world looks a lot better today. We still have lots of challenges. But I mean, I can only imagine that last year must have felt like going from, from feast to famine to feast in a way. And you're in such a hot market. And then all of a sudden, I can only imagine, but a lot of your customers must have been hit severely by the crisis. So lots of projects with you must have come to an end or stopped or, or been paused. And, and now I'm sure it's hotter than ever before again, as everyone is hiring at the moment um, to upskill. Like, talk me, talk me through yeah. that. <laughs> you're absolutely spot on. I mean, you're spot on. I mean, yeah, last year, 2020 was uh, an emotional roller coaster. I mean, you know, we, we had come out of, you know, personally out of 2019, really confident, really strong. You know, we had uh, luckily uh, secured growth funding to go and conquer the world effectively. And then literally within a couple of weeks, the whole thing fell apart. You know, our clients included hospitality, travel, airlines, not that they wanted to stop projects. They couldn't work. I mean, they just couldn't do anything. They couldn't get into the office. Uh -huh. they, our people can get their offices. Uh, you know, they didn't work on laptops. So, the world just suddenly ground to a halt and suddenly, you know, what we were running at and, and what we were actually billing was like polar opposites. So we, we saw the, you know, the, the basically the things that fall apart literally within a couple of weeks, but, uh, you know, I mean, and also, you know, leaders talk about it, but actually nobody had ever been through something like that. I mean, literally, I mean, you know, we could say we've been experiencing tough times, but no one had experienced anything like that. They, they, you know, certainly for us in our world, our clients' worlds, unheard of. I mean, literally nothing. Luckily, uh, by having 
put thought at the beginning of our journey, we were saved a little bit because, you know, our club model is very distributed. Each club has, you know, a small number of clients, you know, has a mixture of industries. So we weren't as impacted as we could have been if we just chased revenue, chase the biggest client or whatever it might have been. So that helped a little bit. And then the other thing, we kind of really come back to values. You know, what are we about? Why we do exist? Why are we here? And the one thing we didn't do was to let a whole bunch of people go because we were short of cash or whatever. We kept everybody employed. We felt confident around what we are and what we do. And uh, we felt confident that we could ride out uh, the next, you know, few months. We all asked, we asked everyone to take a bit of a, uh, you know, a cut in salary. You know, I sacrifice uh, salary. We we took our leaders to do you know do one for the team because we're all in together. And then literally, you know, within three or four months, uh, things started opening up, and you know, we ended up growing uh, in 2020. Our headcount, uh, we grew our revenue. We definitely made a bigger loss than we had planned for, just because that dip in the middle. But we came out very strong, and I'm glad we did that because coming into 2021 we were really on the front foot in terms of uh, that pent up demand. Uh, and so, you know, we have come out of it full of confidence. We've, you know, we're growing massively and I'm glad that, you know, in the, the bleakest of moments, we made the right calls, even though we didn't quite know how long it was going to last that time, but we made the right calls. What an experience as a leader. Really, really fascinating. Um, <laughs> that brings me to my last question. How do you stay energized throughout all of this? You know, it's it's been a marathon. It's your second business. You've done it for seven years before you did it for 10 years. Like that must be very intense and full on. So how do you stay optimistic, you know, positive, energized so that you can energize everyone in the team? Two, two ways I, I, I'm kind of seeing that. Well, one is I think, I think you know, you're in the same sector. I think we're, we're privileged to be in a time and a sector that is actually conquering the world. I mean, technology literally is the best place to be, in my view. Yeah, being surrounded by being doing work in this sector, whether you're building, uh, you know, a travel app, a media thing, or a money transfer, or food delivery, whatever. We're in, we're in a moment in time where we are engineering new businesses, new ideas. I mean, to me, to be in the sector this moment in time where you are redefining everything, it's just, a, to me, massively energizing. We're redefining the world through software and data. So to me, being involved in that space, uh, it's just brilliant. So that, to me kind of gives energy, you know, it's a curiosity, it's learning, we're, 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 we are pioneering um, new things. The other thing that, that really keeps me motivated and gives me energy is, is really solving problems in a different way. And it comes back to the problem of how do you scale an organization? I think if I just wanted to do something just the way that everybody else does it, I think it wouldn't be that exciting. It wouldn't be that interesting. Uh, and, you know, there are plenty of ways of growing a 10,000 person company, you know, they're doing software, you can build a, a near shore development center and pile it on and sell big programs. And you could do that. We're trying to do something and I'm trying to do something in a different way that proves that you can be big and small at the same time. And I think that to me is really exciting because there's new learnings, new challenges, new ideas there. And I think that, and it's not something that somebody else has done. So that to me is like, worth doing uh, and that that energizes me to figure out 
not as in new ways, new solutions, but new ways of putting together old ideas or ideas that existed, but new ways that help you solve problems in different ways. And those two things really, uh, you know, keeps me energized. Well, thank you so much. This conversation really energized me. I loved listening to everything you said. Thank you so much for taking the time. Really, really inspiring and all the best. No doubt you you and, and digital will be hugely successful in the next couple of years. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. I really enjoyed talking to you. <laughs>